from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Hey there, thanks for joining me on Trauma ICU Rounds. In our first rapid rounds, we're discussing tracheostomies during the current COVID-19 pandemic. Given our recent episode on tracheostomies, as well as what seems to be an ever-increasing number of publications on this specific topic, pretty much on a daily basis, the timing seems about right to discuss a few issues related to the when and how to perform a trach in a patient with confirmed or previously treated COVID-19. The format of Rapid Rounds is simple. I'd like to review with you one clinically controversial or hot topic, which, similar to other rounds, is selected by you or on the basis of recent developments in the surgical literature in under 10 minutes. And to do this, rounds will be focused around one or two key questions or areas of concern as it relates to said topic. Today's Rapid Rounds are informed by two recent articles in the trauma critical care literature, one published in Trauma Surgery Acute Care Open and the other in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. And the links to these articles can be found in the show notes at traumaicurounds.com. So we have two questions that we're going to discuss today. And the first question is, when should we perform a tracheostomy in COVID-19 patients? Now, in episode eight, we discussed several general considerations when it comes to performing a trach in critically ill patients requiring prolonged mechanical ventilation, But when it comes to patients with COVID-19, we're faced with a whole host of other issues as they relate to the indications and timing of tracheostomy. So why are we so fixated on timing? Well, a lot of it comes down to, legitimately so, the significant risk of viral exposure to healthcare workers and surgeons, anesthetists, nurses, and scrub techs, as well as ICU nurses during such aerosolizing procedures, as well as legitimate concerns regarding ICU bed and ventilator occupancy and the transitioning of patients from the acute to convalescent and rehab care settings. The two big questions regarding timing, at least as I see them, are how long should we wait and should patients be COVID negative prior to embarking on performance of a trach? So per the guidance and recommendations from the Acute Care Surgery and Critical Care Committee of the AAST, or the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, performance of a tracheostomy is recommended against in patients with active COVID-19 disease. Now, although I don't completely agree with this, I am happy to see that Dr. Chris Machetti et al. make it clear that the decision to proceed with trach should be made on an individualized basis with multidisciplinary input consideration of local resources, and perhaps most importantly, using a patient and family-centered approach. The group suggests that if a tracheostomy is to be performed, it should be done in a delayed manner among patients without severe disease and after a negative COVID-19 test has resulted. I assume that the thought here is that viral load testing equates to non-transmissibility. However, A point to mention here is that the presence of viral RNA in specimens doesn't always correlate with viral transmissibility, and the inability to differentiate between infective and non-infective, meaning dead or antibody-neutralized viruses, remains a major limitation of nucleic acid detection. Personally, if a patient has a positive prognostic outlook, has been intubated for two weeks or more, is over the cytokine storm, and requires long-term ventilatory support, I'm all for performing tracheostomies in these patients, 
even in the presence of active disease. Again, these have to be performed with the most safety and precautions with minimal and senior personnel and should be rehearsed or simulated in a multidisciplinary fashion in order to identify areas of weakness or potential vulnerabilities both to patients and the healthcare staff. And we'll get to that in just a minute. And that's exactly what the Trauma and Acute Care Surgery Group out of Westchester Medical Center in New York State has done in a recently published case series with senior author Dr. Peter Ree of 18 COVID-19 patients who underwent an open tracheostomy in the operating room using a jury-rigged negative flow hood created over the operative field using readily available equipment and supplies. Personally, I think that the negative hood thing is a little overkill, particularly if you're inappropriate PPE, plus or minus the use of a papper and minimizing electrocautery use. But I would still encourage you to check out the article, which has everything from indications to steps in performing a trach and how to modify a T-piece to allow patients to be on a trach collar while minimizing aerosolization. I've got to say, I really enjoyed reading this paper and much more so than most of the other quote-unquote science that's being published in a lot of other high-impact medical journals at present. Regarding our second question, how should we perform a tracheostomy in order to minimize healthcare worker exposure and the potential for transmission, there really is no one accepted or ideal response, and the decision to proceed via a surgical, percutaneous, or a hybrid approach, as well as the location, be it the OR versus ICU, will need to be tailored based on your individual institution's resources, ideally with multidisciplinary input from colleagues in critical care, anesthesia, and the operating room. With that said, once the decision to proceed with trach has been made, there are a few important points to bear in mind. For example, here at Harbor UCLA, we've been performing our trachs via an open approach in a negative pressure OR with N95s, a face shield, and two senior surgery faculty members and minimal OR staff. As recommended in the JTAX article, we also ensure that patients are completely paralyzed to reduce the risk of coughing and aerosolization at the beginning of the procedure. Further, as recommended in both articles, we hold ventilation at exhalation prior to tracheal entry and continue to hold ventilation until intratracheal placement to the tracheostomy with cuff inflation has been accomplished. Regarding percutaneous approaches, I think the decision to use a bronch and ideally a single-use disposable bronch should be tailored to your comfort level. There are several alternative methods that have been described and that we've discussed here and that have been proposed for safely withdrawing the ET tube above the tracheostomy site in the absence of direct visualization via fiber optic bronchoscope while minimizing aerosolization and the potential for premature unplanned extubation. One such method involves advancing the ET tube distally and reinflating the cuff, incising the skin and soft tissues, accessing the trachea in the usual Seldinger fashion, and while using either finger palpation or ultrasound, withdrawing the inflated ET tube until it's above the proposed trach site either by palpation or direct visualization with ultrasound, at which point dilation and insertion of the tracheostomy would occur in the normal fashion. In summary, tracheostomy is a high-risk procedure, especially in patients with COVID-19, but among those who, in the judgment of a multidisciplinary team, in discussion with the patient and family are deemed to, number one, have a positive outlook, 
Two, are no longer suffering from severe hypoxemia. Three, are at least two weeks into their course. And four, over the cytokine phase of their illness, should be considered candidates for tracheostomy. Again, I think it is incumbent upon us within our local healthcare systems to figure out how exactly we can arrange and organize for our patients once they're trached to go to a convalescent or a rehab facility from the acute care side of things in order to rehab, regain their strength, and get back to their normal lives. Again, so many of these patients will be severely deconditioned with ICU critical care illness myopathy, neuropathy, as well as the post-ICU syndrome. And that wraps up another episode of Trauma ICU Rounds. If you like what you're hearing, please do subscribe and leave us a positive comment at iTunes or wherever you download your podcast from. Additionally, please do visit the website at traumaicurounds.com. Leave us a comment there. We're happy to go over any potential topics or issues that you're interested in hearing about. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, and take care of one another.